Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So on today's podcast, we have the one and only Tony Quested with us talking about his annual Business Weekly Awards. But I think whilst we've got him, James, we should pick his brains a little bit more and see what he's got to say on a wide variety of topics with his three decades of experience. Yeah, and for the listeners outside of Cambridge, Tony is the CEO of Business Weekly, which you might hear us mention each week when we do our news section. So Tony uh, and the team cover all the, the latest news from all of the high tech and life science companies in the city. So it should be a good episode. Well, hello, Tony. This is this is a first. We obviously talk on a regular basis and I'm usually providing you input from our clients. But today I get to pick your brains. I'm not allowed out. <laughs> you are. They, st- they stick me on a seat in front of a machine and I'm, I'm the uh, I'm like a factory worker. I just regurgitate all these <laughs> all these hundreds of emails that come in from all over the world. So it's a lo- it's lovely to be here. No, it's, it's great. Thank you very much for, for coming to see us. So obviously we've got you on to talk about the awards, which we're going to come on to. But actually, we're as everyone knows, we like to be a little bit nosy and find out a little bit more background. So let's um, share with the audience a little bit of your background and, and how long you've been in this, this industry and, and where you started. I started my journalistic career in an apprenticeship when I was a mere stripling of 19, which would have been 1969, on the Folkestone Hyde and District Herald, and I was absolutely bloody useless. Um, I used to go along to flower shows and uh, RSPCA meetings and uh, struggle to hold my interest in those, but um, I gradually went to the uh, Kentish Times newspaper in, uh, in South London, and then because it was the only way my partner who's a journalist and I could get news desk jobs, we moved up north to uh, Blackpool, the West Lancashire Reading Gazette. And then uh, I got a call from a pal of mine in Fleet Street in 1989-1990 to say, can you come and teach these people how to write? And um, his words, not mine. And I just felt like I'd been in a rut I'd had opportunities in Fleet Street which I turned down before and I just wanted to wanted to try it so so that was it so Um, down to Fleet Street you went down to Fleet Street I went um, I don't know whether it was personal but they shut Fleet Street down (laughs) a few weeks after I got there (laughs) so uh, I was um, I quite enjoyed it but they they moved to um, the other side of the riverbank over Southwark Bridge and uh, then I was sub-editing on the Telegraph for a while after the Express newspapers and when I found out I was putting whiskey on my cornflakes one morning I decided that I couldn't stand the moral chasm that was Fleet Street anymore and uh, and left and started a, a fledgling PR marketing agency 
and we had clients like Steve Ives, who was at the time was working with Apple on the Apple Newton, uh, Amy nationally who were doing road building and things like that and had engineering accountancy clients and Lloyd's I we handled the uh, merger of the blue and the green for Lloyd's TSP and then I got a call saying you know do you fancy spearheading a new investment team within Business Weekly so three years after my partner founded the newspaper with college colleagues from the Cambridge News I moved across and morphed the uh, PR agency in. We got investment from Herman Hauser. Uh, one of the first questions he asked me was, where's my dividend? And his accountant told him that a dividend was something he got with Green Shield stamps, which shows my age. And uh, <laughs> the accountant ended up in the, in the Algarve, so he didn't do so badly. And I don't think Herman suffered as a result of being in touch, but... Um, it's worked out very well. Herman is a, a very successful entrepreneur in his own right. And we open doors. Part of the proposition with Business Weekly is that we help, especially young companies, um, develop and grow and uh, network. And we preach to them what we think is the right way to to grow um, and to talk to each other and lean on other entrepreneurs. Yeah. We had a very interesting uh, meeting where I was doing a talk for Springboard when John Bradford was trying to get that going. Yeah. And he'd invited some uh, young people across from Shoreditch, from Silicon Roundabout. Yeah. And they said, what on earth do we want to come to Cambridge for? You know, we're in Shoreditch. And I said, right, I'll give you telephone numbers for Alan Sugar and Richard Branson. See if you get past the switchboard. Then I'll give you numbers for Sherry Kutu, Herman Hauser, David Cleveley. Jonathan Milner, blah, blah, blah. Willed off all the serious entrepreneurs. I said, they'll not, you'll not only get to them, but they'll ask how they can help you, and they will help you. And that was the difference. So tell us about, like, what does a typical week look like for Business Weekly? You're obviously there with Jamie uh, and your partner, as you said. Um, I'm sure all the phase press releases that you receive are amazing, but you must get inundated with emails, press releases. Talk us through like what that week looks like and uh, you know how you work towards. We've outsourced work for a long time as we've studied the trends. So we have researchers, for want of a better word, across the planet. Yeah. Because a lot of the stories, an East of England company may be shy in releasing details of where they're going and what they're doing. Yeah. But their investors in the States or Asia aren't so shy because they want an early exit and they want to push that company as far as they can go as soon as they can. Mm -hmm. So we gather a lot of information. I mean, I could write a book on information that you have to keep confidential, you know, whether it's companies who, God forbid, want to move off the Science Park or another place, and can you talk to one of your agents and find us somewhere else? Or we're trying to raise funds and we don't want to go down the VC route. Can you tell us who we should talk to about organic growth? Mm. So most of my week is is dealing with issues that are actually above the ecosystem. So press releases are just a part of it. The other thing is we don't publish press releases. We say to everybody, we interpret press releases. We want to see where you're going so we can bring in background where that company has been, wow. the good and the bad. But proper journalism. 
I'm glad you said that. Yeah, <laughs> I used to, I used to have those arguments with the uh, when I was doing shifts on news desks at the Daily Mail and other papers. We check everything out yeah. because otherwise, if you if you are doing a story about a tech company or a life science company or a general industrial company, and what you write influences people who are usually your mates to invest their money in that business and it goes belly up. You share responsibility for that. Mm. You've misled people. So we check everything out to the nth degree. You publish, you, you learn who to trust and who not to trust. And you go by that gut instinct, but you check everything out. You never publish a press release. Mm. You know, we work with people who do, but that's their choice. So, so on that point of proper journalism, We've got to ask you what your views are on the state of journalism and news in general and, and media, I guess, on a broader sense, you know, both in terms of authenticity and trust and in, and in terms of fact checking, but also things like, you know, digital versus print. Because, well, for the listeners that aren't in Cambridge, you're, you're producing a print version of the paper every week as well in Cambridge. It's not so, every week these days. Okay. So uh, we do e-papers, digital papers, because the, I mean, taking your point, Every national newspaper I know and every local newspaper I know is struggling in terms of getting print editions sold. Uh-huh. Because, you you know, if I pick up a national in the morning, which I now these days will only buy for sport and crosswords, you've seen all the news, you've heard all the news, you've got TV, you've got radio, you've got social media, uh-huh. you've got so many sources of news. You have people who use Twitter as was or use other social media, WhatsApp, whatever. There are so many sources of stories that by the time you pick up, for example, a national paper or a local newspaper, you're going to be very lucky to read anything that you haven't read before. Mm. You therefore get into the realm of interpretive journalism where the columnists that you trust to understand issues I appreciate having worked for nationals and having worked on local newspapers. I can appreciate the, especially the struggles that national journalists have. But I don't regard national newspapers in this country any longer as a reliable source of fresh information. It's just how it is. There is so much media out there. The other issue, of course, is that apart from one or two notable exceptions, The national media, the national newspapers in this country are chiefly foreign-owned, which is something that Keir Starmer wants to put an end to. I've seen standards decline in journalism because everyone is under such pressure to get a story first, they cut corners. Human nature. They are then getting pressure from their editors and news editors to cut corners. We're not under those pressures. And how has that changed the way that you deliver Business Weekly? Are you going digital first as soon as you get wind of a story? We, we that... publish big, what I regard as good stories, and Jamie bears the brunt of this, we publish online first yeah, because that's the way people are receiving stories. And if you, if you're, if you decide you, you're not going to publish a story online, you're then in the realms of doing a follow-up or a stale piece in a print edition. Mm. I was always regarded as a dinosaur in our business. You know, you've got to let go of this print obsession and you've got to get with the new social media trends. I've learned to let go uh, because the sort of mores I was brought up with no longer apply. 
you're talking about news when news breaks. You know, every newspaper when I was coming through the journalistic mangle had a stop press. So if there was a budget announcement, that would be in the stop press. Horse racing results in the stop press. These days, you know, if you're waiting for that, you know, you've seen it on TV, you've seen it on radio, you've seen it on yeah. other social media. So the whole the whole ball game has changed. You know, you're on about news. So we publish news if we think it's big as soon as we can. And that is the way you should do it. If you consider that your chief function is to deliver news to readers across the across the world, which we do. You've got to get it there as quick as you can in front of them and realise you're not going to be the only medium that's doing that. Well, and I guess that's the other benefit of being digital first is you are reaching a much wider audience than the physical distribution of the paper when you first started. Jamie's developing, he's very good at social media, and when he's developing LinkedIn clients and you get a big story breaking, you're getting C-level executives who are taking your LinkedIn story and pushing that to, I don't know, 35,000, 55,000, however many it is, if it's one of the big cancer research institutes or big biotech, you know, you're actually leveraging their following. It was not rocket science, but it makes a lot of sense. So it's all about amplifying your platforms and, and your message with, yeah. with everyone else, and you can do that. That's that's what the point of social media as opposed to going print, you know, and, and just having that print um, um, issue. So I, I think it kind of reminds me of the conversation we had when Herman was on and he talked about Truthometer. So one of the visions I've had about 10 years ago was something I called the evidence engine. And the evidence engine would be a ticker tape at the bottom of the TV screen that would in real time show you the evidence for whatever a politician says, in which case uh, the little worm you know, would be green, or the enormous amount of evidence to contradict what the person have just said, in which case the worm would be at the bottom and would be red. And if there is neither any evidence for or any evidence again, it would hover in the middle in a brown colour to make clear that this is just straightforward bullshit. <laughs> So, you know, that integrity of news is like so super important. But the other thing I, I think certainly we've found from, from working with Business Weekly is it's that thoughtful content. It's the fact that you do research it and you don't just put a press release out. It's that whole story that goes around it. And I think that that's kind of a real, a real key differentiator in, in what you do as well. Certainly something we've, I can't say we set out to do it but what we have been successful at doing is interpreting the way people want to receive their news and a lot of it is generational but you still have to you know to use Herman's phrase we, we have to put it through a kind of a common sensometer if you like because people in business which is our main market even investors their time is at such a premium. I mean, we had a former Guardian journalist who used to coach me uh, um, on my first paper in Folkestone. He said, that's a really good piece you wrote, he said, but far too long. And it was only seven pars. He said, I can get that down. I can cut that by a third and you won't lose anything. I said, no, you can't. So he did it. He said, I can cut it by another third. 
And uh, I said, it's impossible. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, just watch this. Bang, bang, bang. I thought, Christ, he's right. And, and then he said, now I can get it down to the intro. And he did the intro. He said, what are you missing from that story? I said, nothing, apart from a quote. Yeah. And he said, well, he said, if you've not caught your reader with the headline and the intro, he said, you've lost your reader. Mm. You're dealing with people who've got investment of one form or another and you've got to be very, very careful about the way you do it because you can damage a share price by careless reporting. You can stop an investor getting a return when they've shown good faith in a business. So we uh, have to look at whether we're likely to do any damage unfairly to the business on which we're reporting with people involved in the judging of our awards and we always get this every year what we know and what we can say are not always the same thing but you don't you you gain credibility and you gain allies by being sensitive to what they want in the marketplace and what they can't afford to have in the marketplace so you know i'd like to think we're part of the business community rather than someone who feeds off it If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and homeworking mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, Lakeside Pavilion and Atrium Spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Part one of the conversation, I think, was a really good primer, especially for people outside of Cambridge on Business Weekly, the history of it and your background, Tony. Why don't we now move on and talk about Business Weekly Awards? How, how long have they been running for? The um, first awards were held in May 1990, pretty much the same month that the, uh, the newspaper was launched. And uh, so this is the 33rd annual award ceremony even even during covid we held private ceremonies so that we weren't disrupting uh the flow because companies you know are quite um immune to uh putting themselves out if they think that uh, there's nothing on the end of it so we've continued to award crystal obelisks even though we had a couple of years where we weren't able to physically mm. hold the dinner it keeps everyone involved and it makes no sense to have a business awards that started in 1990 and then, you know, expect that you can have a break and everyone's going to pick up on it. So anyone looking to kind of look back at the companies that were going to break through in Cambridge, then there's a real archive there of like success stories over the last 33 years. We, we worked out from our Hall of Fame that companies have been uh, who've won the business of the year title alone have been sold for a collective $65.5 billion. Wow. If you go into category winners, you can triple that figure. And we have had that first winner, Pi Research, Tony Pennell, who, who went on to be a leading figure in British cycling. 
he said he hadn't even written a business plan. He came back as guest speaker a, a few years ago. And he said, I, th- I went away from winning that initial trophy and thought I'd better write a business plan. And then he turned it into Pie Group and they won it for a second time in 94. Um, and they were sold to Ford and then up to Vistian for 50 million, which then was worth an awful lot of money. Mm. If I could just pick through these, I mean, Arm has won it twice, but first one, 1999, second one, 2012, just launched on NASDAQ for valuation of 54.5 billion. That mm-hmm. went higher within days and is now stabilised. We had a canvas which did the smallpox vaccine for the United States government. The canvas was soon sold to Sanofi in France uh, for big money. We had Cambridge Antibody Technology who went through all sorts of behind-scenes nightmares, sold to AstraZeneca six months after winning the awards. Totally coincidental, of course. Before that, Cambridge Silicon Radio, who uh, invented uses for Bluetooth. And the American tech companies said, it'll, it'll never work. Bluetooth doesn't work. You're talking rubbish. And uh, Qualcomm, an American company, came in after a couple of years and paid $2.5 billion for the privilege of owning them. You've had others. Uh, Verata was sold to Globespan very soon after... Uh, winning our awards autonomy sold to hp we know the fallout from that but it's uh, it was a legitimate business abcam are talking about a potential sale although there's all sorts going on behind the scenes which might delay or torpedo that deal domino uk inkjet printing company coding and marking as they call it these days twice won our awards and uh, were bought by Brother Industries in Japan for a modest billion. Uh, Zar went into another inkjet company, went into foreign ownership for a while, but have stabilised since um, since losing that ownership. Horizon Discovery was bought by Perk and Elmer, who've now morphed into the Revity brand. Uh, Sapura has had two or three iterations, Dark Tracer stood alone, <laughs> as had Frontier Developments, with a lot of a lot of foreign money. But down the years, those companies have been sold, as I say, for sixty-five point five billion. Category winners have been pretty, pretty good as well. So, people who win our awards may be an accident. I don't know, but we certainly try to pick the companies throughout the process that have got the best chances of long-term success. And that's certainly true of this year's shortlist and this year's winners. I think the other interesting thing with that is, you know, the the categories themselves have evolved over the years as well. You know, like with the editorial side of, of things, with the awards, you've changed them and you've adapted them to, you know, whether the technology is changing or I think you were one of the first ones to put a female entrepreneurship award um, up as well. So do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing or is it just people submit and then you decide which categories they're going to fall into? In terms of the categories, you've got to reflect the strengths of the business community which you serve. So it's not rocket science to say that, okay, not specifically, but genomics. Cambridge has become a world leader in genomics. Yeah. 
mainly through institutions, but also now through an increasing number of genomics companies. Um, and obviously that you could argue that Selexa started it by selling the uh, fast genome sequencing to Illumina. Illumina, they're moving here. I think we've got representations from the world's leading 20 biotech companies in Cambridge. So you've got that element of it. Deep tech is another one where you describe deep tech, I would say artificial intelligence, machine learning is not the dark arts that everyone tries to make out AI and machine learning to be. But deep tech has morphed. And, and then we try to reflect what is going on in the business community. I mean, synthetic biology is uh, something that even ethics and others have practiced. Even, even ethics won two awards this year. And then the semiconductor industry has morphed so far beyond ARM these days. You've got a lot of young startups now, and most of the companies are embracing some form of high-performance computing like Riverlane in terms of quantum computing, uh, Paragraph. Um, A lot of companies who won our awards are now talking to each other about developing their technology on chips, whether that's graphene, whether it's sustainable technologies, whether it's remodeling engines for a new generation of electric vehicles, which is another trend in Cambridge. You're seeing a lot of hybrid technology plays where life science companies are talking to what we would regard as traditional high technology companies and high tech companies that have different propositions talking to one another about whether they can collaborate on something that accelerates success for both of them. So you, you've mentioned a couple of the the winners there, but let's just how many how many people submitted for the awards this year? How many people were finalists? There were 170 odd that made a credible long term shortlist from a couple of hundred that were either people that we'd invited or people who'd entered under their own steam. We got down to a shortlist of 50. One or two close run things because companies had to prove to us that they had gone on to develop their technology to where we thought it was more than just hype, more than just a possibility. So we, we really put them through the mangle before we got down to that shortlist. And then the judging takes a number of forms. So we have a judging afternoon where the sponsors can have their four penneth. You ask some companies to pitch, but that's not always because they're guaranteed to win. A lot of it is they fail to answer questions either to people who visited their companies or there's certain information that they feel that they're constrained to talk about. It may be investment. It may be the way their technology is going. So we have Mills and Reeve, who's a lead forensic sponsor, for example, would go out to a lot of the companies that we decide between us to do in-depth interviews and then sponsors can chip in onto they've seen this trend happening they've seen that trend happening Um, did we have xyz company on the radar it's a very very thorough and broadly sweeping process because as you say these companies have got to represent not just business weekly but some very high level sponsors like arm and astrazeneca and banks and accountants and lawyers and 
you know, most of the science parks around here, they've got to represent you for 12 months. You don't want a company going bust, but you want to be as sure as you reasonably can that they're going to actually add value in the ensuing 12 months. Yeah, and I think it's that level of rigour that really gives the credibility to the awards. I mean, both of us regularly participate in judging different startup competitions and all do a good job, but so much of it is opinion. They don't have the research element. They aren't doing the proper due diligence, are they, of checking the potential of the technology and the financials? You know, so I think the fact that, you, that the awards goes into that level of detail really does set it apart from others, I think. Well, it's, it's always subjective. Yeah. No matter what you're choosing, it's always subjective. And a lot of voices would have favoured River Lane. Yeah because they're in they're in on the ground floor yeah. of a multi-billion dollar opportunity and appear to us to be leading the way but then how do you deny a company like paragraph that has not just zoomed in on the wonder material graphene but is actually looking at how best to commercialize mm. products arising from that and paragraph as a result of that success at our awards, we'll look at a number of things that we fed back to them. They have a challenge in terms of how they develop their manufacturing facility. They have a challenge in drilling down to where the value is in the business in terms of what they produce from what they've discovered. They have a challenge in staying in Cambridge rather than being lured to the US they went to America tomorrow, their valuation and the money they could get would be 20 times, possibly 50 times more than they realised in the UK because the Americans would take risks. Failure's not in their dictionary. You know, the only failure in America is failure to try. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a large number of awards and subcategories. So where can listeners find the information of who was successful this year? On the Business Weekly website. <laughs> But we get companies round round the clock. We get companies saying they've they've seen a story or a friend has told them. How do they enter? So, uh, I say the, we we would then grill them and say, well, okay, what what does your company do? Where are you at? How are you funded? The other thing that has become obvious this year, just taking Cambridge, a lot of our winning companies have clear synergies and are already working together. Biotech takes care of itself. It's a brilliant life science cluster. It's evolved. In terms of the tech companies, I'd pick out Paragraph, Riverlane, Monumo, which is revolutionising the way that motors in cars, right up to the newest electric vehicles, are actually made. Forefront RF, whose chairman is fellow Donovan, who obviously steered Cambridge Silicon Radio to the $2.5 billion sale to Qualcomm. They are all leaders in their field. So it's the most Cambridge leaders I've ever seen in specific tech fields. You could put even ethics into that hybrid category because there are a lot of tech uses for their, what started out as synthetic biology. A lot of those companies have indicated to us that they're already talking to other winners to see whether there are synergies 
which would push their proposition even further. We're seeing a lot of the younger companies eschewing venture capital money, where the VCs might be saying we want an exit within three years or whatever, and using the credibility of existing customers for organic growth. And the loyalty to Cambridge, what's the driver for that? They want to stay closer to Cambridge University. They want to stay close to the serial entrepreneurs. Tony Raven at Cambridge Enterprise, uh, before he retired from that job, said to me, you look at the pool of advisory talent in Cambridge. The entrepreneurs are not retiring to yachts in the Caribbean. Funnily enough, he was emailing me from a yacht on the Caribbean, but (laughs) that's pure, pure happenstance. And that pool of angels and serial entrepreneurs has widened considerably. I mean, Faye mentioned women entrepreneurs. When we were approached by Cambridge University regarding the Woman Entrepreneur of the Year Award, I took a load of stick personally, saying that you don't have a male Entrepreneur of the Year Award. And this year, we had a lot more companies being run and run well by women that are getting investment. You've now got the uh, Cambridge Angels chairman as a woman. You've got companies like Darktrace being run by Poppy Gustafsson, the Martina King at Feature Space. They were another winner in our awards. And we feel that there is still a long way to go before the city realises that women entrepreneurs we're going to keep hammering that message eventually there's going to be so many companies out there that are run by women you're not going to be able to avoid funding them and that's why we introduced that award and that's why we're growing that element of the award i mean we do have a lot of female entrepreneurs founders in cambridge you know you've got new quantum you've got georgia Lungabardi, cgd you know there's there's a long list of them but I think I agree with you. You do still have to keep showing it. If you see it, you believe it, you know. But over time, you know, I look down this list and like you say, Martina's in the vivid queue with Alex. You know, that there are definitely businesses that are out there, but it'll be interesting because I know next week we're talking to um, Simon Thorpe and he's a real advocate of female founders um, as well. So I'm sure it's, it's a conversation that we do have to keep having. Um, but over time, it should yeah. norm out. Simon represented Judge Business School on the judging panel for the Woman Entrepreneur of the Year Award, the year Poppy Gustafsson from Dark Trace won it. It's that magic source of Cambridge. You know, yes, it is about collaboration. It is about investment. But it's also about being willing to step up and, you know, push people to go in, in a certain direction as well. So, you know, from my point of view, long may that may that continue well you've got to hold up what we try and do is hold up a mirror to the business community and if you were to hold that mirror in front of what is happening within for example the startups and spin outs that are emanating from cambridge university i would say just off the top of my head that at least 80 percent of those are run by a woman entrepreneur they are inspiring other women within the university within the graduates and phd communities to start their own businesses. Um, So you are seeing a mood change, you're seeing a cultural change. You know, we're seeing not just more startups coming out of the universities, we're seeing more mature startups coming out of the universities, maturing earlier, getting finance earlier, and with uh, a global agenda. They're not content to come out and be a Cambridge company, they just happen to be staged here. 
but you've got this dichotomy in that where all these companies know that they can make more money quicker if they establish their business in the US. And that is Cambridge's challenge. It's a challenge for the planners. It's a challenge for the government. The reality is the planners have to pick around issues like water provision, infrastructure, power provision. These things take a long time. You've got a fact that Cambridge cannot recruit engineers fast enough. Most of these companies that, that won our award this year need engineers. They can't supply them out of the Cambridge graduate population anymore. Hence the Bristol link. And a lot of the companies are telling us if they can only get good engineers for three days a week, and those engineers happen to be based in Macclesfield or wherever, they'd rather take the talent, yeah. regardless of the demands that puts on them, yeah. and just have a monthly get-together or a Zoom meeting. But they've got to have that engineering talent, and that's, that's one of the biggest problems we've got. So, as we've just said, anyone who wants to find out more details on the winners they can go online to businessweekly.co.uk there's also the hashtag businessweekly awards which is very easy to find as well so regular listeners will know each week we we do our new section and we always say in partnership with business weekly so we have a little process just to pull back the curtain where um, we get the news headlines from you guys each week so we're nice and topical on every episode but as you're here this week why don't you, Tony, do the news headlines for us okay. as you're writing them? I, I, <laughs> we only write the stories. You don't expect me to remember them. I think, I think one of the best companies Cambridge has ever produced, and it's an anomaly that it hasn't won our Business Weekly Awards because, for one reason or another, they've not entered, is CMR Surgical, who invented the uh, Versius robot arm They've just topped up a a round for 165 million, and that takes their funding past a billion dollars. They were already Cambridge's youngest unicorn business, uh, edging out Darktrace. So, CMR Surgical, congratulations, have raised another 165 million, over a billion funding to date. And I don't think you're going to see them stopping there. The other big movement, of course, is that they are wanting to manufacture their own robot arms and are building a facility locally to do just that. Arm, just to give them a passing uh, mention, raised uh, multi-billion dollars. Our information is, and here's an exclusive for the Cambridge Tech Podcast, is that we wouldn't be surprised to see Arm now float on the UK as well. We think that's a possibility. So congratulations to Arm Immaterial, which won the graduate, Cambridge Judge Business School Graduate Business of the Year, contacted us a couple of days after winning their category at the awards to say, oh, we forgot to mention we've just raised a big amount of money. They won't tell us how much, but they have raised a substantial sum. An undisclosed Series A is how we put it. That is another trend that we're seeing. The rise and rise of the sustainable technology businesses out of Cambridge University. That is certainly not a bad start for a new week post-awards and no doubt my inbox will be full of more by the time we get back to our desks. Great and we can pick those up next week in our in our regular slot can't we then? We can. 
That's great. Tony, thank you. So we've covered so many things. Um, Really insightful. Really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us and well done on another very successful prestigious awards event. Well, we should also say thank you to, to both of you for supporting the podcast as well. Absolutely. Obviously, we're coming up to our first year anniversary and we much appreciate the support. And, and Jamie is sitting in the room, but he's not in front of a microphone. So thank you, Jamie, too. So join us next week for a rather special episode. It's our first anniversary of the podcast. Are you going to bring cake? I might bring cake and hats and streamers and all those kinds oh, of things. super. Also joining us is Simon Thorpe, who is a very well-known local uh, angel investor. So I'm sure Simon is going to be very insightful and will join us to reflect back on our first 12 months. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.